we're essentially equipping the surgeon with an extra set of arms and hands and instruments uh, and giving the surgeon the complete control over all the instruments uh, in that laparoscopy surgery. So, you know, that that's very much like what a da Vinci does, right? A da Vinci gives control to the surgeon over all the instruments that are used in that surgery. But in doing that, um, the da Vinci removes the surgeon from the center of the OR. And so that creates, you know, all sorts of complexities that essentially limit the adoption of da Vinci for simpler, shorter surgical procedures and for settings where efficiency is, you know, critical. So we've we've tried to take what surgeons like about robotics, which is, you know, the complete control, the super stable vision, the precision, but bring that really at the bedside in a way that wouldn't change the workflow in the OR and that wouldn't change the surgical technique, the surgical instrumentation, and that would be very light to implement. Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the Less Invasive Podcast, your source for minimally invasive surgery and robotics and other assistive technologies for the operating room and radiology environment. If you haven't done already, make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast five stars. I'm your host, Lucien Blondel, co-founder and CTO of Quantum Surgical, a startup commercializing the Epion robot for percutaneous tumor ablation. I bring to the table 20 years of experience in imaging and robotics in various specialties, orthopedics, neurosurgery, spine surgery, international radiology, and international oncology. Today, I'm super happy to have Anne Ozdua on the show. Anne is the CEO of a medtech startup called Moon Surgical. Moon is developing a robot for laparoscopy procedure called Maestro. Anne is also a VC partner at Sofinova, a Paris-based VC firm. Uh, where she's in charge of a medtech acceleration fund and we'll talk about the uh, maestro and uh, vc prior to moon she also led a couple of uh, medtech startup created and seed founded by uh, md start and she held roles in uh, marketing and clinical affairs in the medtech space and thank you very much for making time for me how are you today i'm great hi lucien hi everyone it's great to be here Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm very curious, like uh, the audience that uh, shared a lot of questions about uh, the Maestro system, uh, but uh, we'll start with a couple of questions about yourself. Can you briefly uh, introduce yourself? What's your background and what has been your experience in the medtech space? Sure. Um, so I'm Anne. Um, I'm 41. Um, I'm based in Paris. I'm the mother of four children and um, I have a You know, passion for medical devices. Um, I always dreamt um, dreamed of being a clinician as a as a child. I didn't go down that path for for different reasons, but I always wanted to work with clinicians um, and really try to contribute in a way to you know better care for patients. And you know, I, I did engineering studies and found that you know there was a way to basically go back to that um, original goal by working in the medical device industry. So I've, I've been an operator in the medical device industry uh, for the past um, 20 years, uh, working in startups, um, you know, and being the first resource um, recruited um, beyond R&D, basically. That was my first job at Monarchia Technologies, uh, working on, you know, first um, 
um, first regulatory approvals, first clinical trials, first product demos, um, you know, anything that was not R&D pretty much uh, for a few years. Um, I then um, focused on clinical affairs, as you said, and, you know, developed a small team focusing on, on clinical studies, um, did some additional training there because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a very specific field. And then as the company grew, um, still at Monarchia, um, was in charge of marketing and, and some business development aspects. Um, and after that, I, I, I met um, Antoine Papiernik, who is the managing partner at Sophie Nova Partners. And he had started um, with a few other people a few years um, before an entity called ND Start, um, which really had a mission of identifying disruptive medtech projects. Um, usually coming out of hospitals and clinicians and turning them into into startup companies and basically you know bridging the gap between the concepts in the hospital and you know developing products and getting them into the clinic and Antoine needed someone to to champion that project to raise more money for it to develop it to stabilize the model etc so that's what I that's what I did for a few years and as part of MD Start I was the founding CEO of a number of our portfolio companies okay and which which areas uh, which specialties were these uh, companies in in the areas of um, colorectal surgery um, and, you know, surgery and digestive surgery uh, specifically is, is an area I know well. I had also done some work in this area um, back at Monarchia Technologies. I was also the CEO of a company called Ablacare then, now called Mayhealth, um, in the field of um, infertility, female infertility. Okay. And I was also the founding company of, a, of gradient generation technologies, which is in the field of uh, pulmonary hypertension. Okay, great. That's a, a pretty rich background, and uh, I understand that uh, all, all these experience, early experience in the early stage uh, medtech company like uh, Monarchia Technologies, uh, prepared you to uh, to be a CEO and, and do uh, due diligence in uh, in the surgical space. So. Moving on to a more personal question, is there someone who is inspiring you today or who has been inspiring you and why? There is someone who I consider to be my mentor. Um, and, you know, I, I have the, the, the luck and the pleasure of working with him on a, on a very regular basis. His name is Gérard Asquet. Okay. Uh, he is one of the founders uh, behind MD Start. He is um, today a venture partner at MD Start. And he is probably the first um, serial medtech entrepreneur in France. Uh, you know, started creating his first startup companies in the early 80s and created three of them and they were all acquired and then gradually became uh, an angel investor and, and became very close with Sophie Nova Partners. He has a lot of wisdom okay. <laughs> uh, and he is extremely kind uh, and cares for people, uh, but also very strategic And he's a great inspiration. I, I would love to, you know, ultimately be, you know, uh, a same leader as he as he has been. Okay, cool. And um, I, I want to add something, which is that I, I also get a lot of inspiration from the people I hire and work with. Um, you know, we, we have an exceptional team, um, both at Moon Surgical and at MD Start. And um, you learn a lot of things from the people you hire as well. Uh, yep. You know, they might be more junior or more expert in certain, you know, fields, but I think they always bring something in terms of you know, how they behave or their, their own leadership um, to yourself. So there's a lot of people who inspire me. 
All right. on a daily cool. basis. Yeah, that, 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 I mean, that's great. And that uh, that reminds me a little, little bit of, uh, you know, Fernand Badano, who is our general manager, kind of the same uh, profile. Yeah. And, uh, and I know they know uh, each other with, uh, with Gerard. So that's uh, kind of the same situation here. So um, how would your parents or friends describe you? This is just to, for the audience to learn who is Anne. Um, so I think they would say um, I'm very energetic. Okay. Um, you know, I am usually, I'm, you know, I'm, I might be tired, right? I mean, I, I am tired, uh, <laughs> very frequently, uh, but, but still very energetic. I'm, I'm an optimistic person, you know, I'm pretty enthusiastic about things. I mean, I have some moments where I'm down, of course, as anyone and disappointed and angry, but, you know, it doesn't last very long. Um, I get very energized by, by the things I like, um, you know, work-related or not work-related. I always need to have, you know, ongoing projects in, in my professional and, and personal life. I'm, um, I would say, you know, there, there is this motto um, that we had at Monarchia from, from one of our investors. Uh, it's in French, it's um, exigence et bienveillance. Okay. In English, you would translate that by, um, you know, being both very... I guess demanding, mm -hmm. uh, but also very caring uh, in a way. And um, yeah, I, I apply that to myself um, a lot and, and to other people. So I, I would say that's a good description. Okay, so energetic, optimistic, very active, demanding, and caring. That's that's who is that. Exactly. Right? Okay, so let's yeah. move on to uh, to uh, the space you're in with the Moon Surgical, which is a laparoscopic uh, surgery. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very curious guy. I'm, a, I'm very much customer-focused, so I like for each episode to understand what's the end-met needs uh, in the space from a, a clinician's perspective. So let's start with the basics, the indication. Uh, can you briefly explain what is a conventional laparoscopic surgery, how it is performed, What are the challenges that need to be solved today? Sure. So, um, so laparoscopy is first um, the standard of care for soft tissue surgery. It has been the standard of care for the past you know, 30 years, maybe. It gradually replaced open surgery. And so the principle is that you're, um, you're doing you know, what's called keyhole surgery. So you're essentially inserting long, thin surgical instruments um, into um, ports um, that are um, you know, created in the abdomen uh, or in the thorax. And in these ports, you place trocars, which are little you know, conduits, basically, for in laparoscopy instruments. And then the surgery is performed inside the abdomen, but the hands of the surgeon um, are outside of the, of the abdomens. And, and you are following or able to see what's inside the abdomen using a camera that is also um, threaded through a hole, usually through the, through the umbilicus. So, you know, the benefits, of course, of laparoscopy surgery is that it's minimally invasive. This is why we're on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, but, um, but as you can imagine, it, it was a significant shift in, in the field, right, of soft tissue surgery because the technique is completely different. The instrumentation is completely different and, and the skill sets required um, are different. Um, you, you have to, you know, now use, you know, very long instruments. You have to invert, um, you know, what, you know, when, when you move it up to the right, it goes on the left, etc. So you have to invert um, your um, movements. Um, you have to see things on the screen versus directly. So it means that your eyes are looking up while your hands are, you know, yep. uh, operating, you know, down. 
so a lot of a lot of training um, and and shifts uh, for surgeons themselves, but also a, a profound um, transformation in the way the operating room is organized, because you need someone to um, basically hold the scope for the surgeon and control the vision of the surgeon and anticipate what the surgeon wants to see at any given time, mm-hmm. and so. You know, this is typically done by a surgical assistant. And likewise, you need someone to hold, you know, a grasper and lift um, the organs um, so that the surgeon can access the tissue of interest, right? Uh, uh, typically, you have to, you know, navigate inside the, the, the abdomen to get to, you know, the gallbladder or, um, you know, the hernia that you need to repair or the appendicitis um, location. So, so, you know, this function of the surgical assistant uh, really becomes pretty critical in, in laparoscopy surgery because it's someone who, you know, gets distributed with, you know, the, the vision and the tissue exposure mm-hmm. for the surgeon. And, and they have to work, you know, basically hand in hand with the surgeon to, to provide that throughout the whole procedure, right, and anticipate the needs of the surgeon. Uh, so that has been one of the challenges of laparoscopy surgery um, over the years. Okay, so I guess the, it requires a lot of uh, communication between the, the surgeon and his uh, assistant uh, or her assistant. Yeah, the... a lot of communication for sure, um, but also you know a lot of um, I think physical optimization. You know, because these two people sort of you know want to have the same footprint, or ideally, mm. if you want to understand what the surgeon would like to see you you know you have to place yourself in the location of the surgeon but you're you're not there as the assistant so uh, you know they fight for the same workspace um to some degree and um yeah there's there's a lot of um you know assistant management in itself is is a whole topic you know you have surgeons telling you you know when i have you know my good assistants i know it's going to be a great day when I have either a new team or a team I don't know, someone who's not familiar with me or someone who just doesn't perform well as an assistant, I, I know it's going to be a lot more painful. Okay. So what, what you explain, what I understand is that there is the surgeon with the two instruments. There is one port for the endoscope and there may be a fourth port for the, the grasper or the tissue exposure that you exactly. mentioned. Is it like every exactly. time three or four? How much of those procedures are, are with three or, or four ports? Because, you know, I've, I've been, uh, I, I posted recently uh, a list of 20 uh, multi-arm surgical robots and maybe more than half of them have uh, four arms, but some have still only uh, three arms. So uh, can you explain uh, yes. the difference? So um, I would say, so the, the bulk of the laparoscopy procedures are four arm or four instruments, uh, four trocars, and that would cover gallbladder removal, so cholecystectomy. It would cover um, a number of uh, hernia repairs. It would cover appendectomies. So, you know, these are the highest volume digestive surgery procedures. You can do some hernia repair procedures uh, with three trocars. Um, There's a lot of different hernias and techniques for hernia repair. So so some of them can be done with three trocars. And then um, you have a number of laparoscopy procedures with five trocars, including, um, you know, oncology procedure. um, Also, some of the bariatric indications have five trocars. So, you know, three, four, and five uh, with, you know, the kind of bread and butter procedures um, being mostly four trocars. 
Okay, and and do you know what what percentage roughly uh, of these laparoscopic procedures are performed in uh, ambulatory uh, surgery centers? Um, so that's a great question. It's um, you know it's a growing percentage uh, for sure because if you if you look at the most frequent procedures in the U.S., most frequent you know digestive surgery procedures, these would be cholecystectomies, um, hernia repairs, and appendectomies. Um, you know to give you a, a, a you know order of magnitude, there's 800,000 gallbladder removals every year in the U.S., about the same number of append appendectomies and a higher number of hernia repairs. Uh, so it's, you know, it's very significant. And so these are, um, you know, um, non-oncological procedures. A number of them, the vast majority of them are non-emergent procedures. Appendectomy is, is a bit different, but Uh, cholecystectomy and hernia repair are non-emergent procedures, um, usually pretty low-risk procedures, um, not necessarily with very old patients. Uh, so they can be done in you know, a lighter setting, right? Yeah. So either an ambulatory surgical center or a hospital um, outpatient department. Mm -hmm. And so hospitals are pushing really these um, simpler cases to, um, to these settings. And so it's, it's very different, um, you know, depending on the data you look at, but it's, it's definitely a, a growing part of the market. Okay, cool. So now I, I, I know a little bit more about uh, laparoscopic surgery. Actually, that, that was the field that I, I started working on and, and, and research on uh, back in 2001 uh, when uh, I was involved in a project that was a teleoperated robot for endoscopic surgery. So I kind of know a little bit about the hernia repair and phone duplication procedures, stuff like that, but just a little bit. Yeah. So now let's talk about the, the maestro robot because uh, everyone is, is really curious in this industry as to what's this robot and uh, because this is uh, this is not not at all anything like the da vinci so what does it look like and what does it do exactly so maestro is um you know what does it look like it's a two-arm robot you know those two arms can hold um, any laparoscopy instrument Our first use case is that um, they would hold a, a scope uh, and a retractor. So typically the two functions that uh, a surgical assistant would do. But, um, you know, in theory and also within our regulatory clearance, um, they can hold anything. And, and it's really um, taking a completely different approach uh, versus other um, soft tissue robots in the sense that, um, you know, we are operating next to the patient um, at the bedside, right? So we are essentially equipping the surgeon with an extra set of um, arms and hands and instruments uh, and giving the surgeon the complete control over all the instruments uh, in that laparoscopy surgery. So, you know, that, that's very much like what a da Vinci does, right? A da Vinci gives control to the surgeon over all the instruments that are used in that surgery But in doing that, um, the da Vinci removes the surgeon from the center of the OR. And so that creates, you know, all sorts of complexities that essentially limit the adoption of da Vinci for um, simpler, shorter surgical procedures and for settings where efficiency is, um, you know, critical. Um, so we've, we've tried to take what surgeons like about robotics, which is, you know, the complete control, The super stable vision, precision, but bring that really at the bedside in a way that wouldn't change the workflow in the OR and that wouldn't change the surgical technique, the surgical instrumentation, and that would be very light to implement, if you will. 
So, so I understand the, the the surgeon pretty much operates the same way he's doing right now in conventional uh, straight stick uh, surgery. It just has these two yeah. arms. He's kind of snap the arm to the instrument after the port placement, and and then exactly. the, the, the robot is uh, is holding this uh, the scope in a stable position or the the grasper to uh, do tissue exposure and make sure that. Uh, 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 you have access to, to to what you want to do in the in, in the anatomy, right? Exactly, exactly. You you place your ports, you place your instruments, and then you approach the the robot. You attach the instruments, the the scope and the grasper in that case, to the arms, and they hold them in place. Um, and anytime you need to move them, you grab the scope, you move it. It's, you know, the, the, the arms will not resist. They will just follow, um, you know, very transparently what the surgeon is doing uh, when moving the scope or the retractor. And as soon as the surgeon lets go, they lock in position and, and hold that position as long as desired. Basically. Okay. And in terms of, uh, so I, I think it's quite, uh, it looks quite straightforward. So in terms of a setup, room layout, I mean, it's not the same footprint, obviously, as the other systems. Uh, what's the, is there a specific setup or specific layout that has to be respected for the use with Maestro? So our, our working assumption was that our system should not be larger than a person, right? Than wow. a human assistant. Okay. And it should be placed wherever the surgical assistant would be located. And so um, that's different based on the clinical indication. It's also different sometimes based on the geography. You know, a gallbladder removal, for instance, is not done the same way in Europe and in the US. The surgeon is not in the same position relative to the patient. The ports are not in the same position and the assistant is not in the same position as a result. Um, so we, we wanted to have um, a platform that would be very adaptable basically to you know any procedure needs. Um, so you can just approach it typically where the assistant would stand and take it from there. The, okay, so we're, we're trying not to change anything. Yeah, I mean, that that's great because uh, that means that uh, you pretty much adapt to uh, whatever specificities, uh, depending on countries, regions, uh, and, and you do not, you do not say, okay, for, for this procedure, yeah. you have to port this, place this port here, this one here, and this one here. You Basically, they do the same. They, they place the port at the same place. It's just that, that they have to uh, put the robot in this place or the other, depending on which configuration they use, right? Exactly. You know, our, our first inhuman study investigator, Professor Bernard Cadier, who is, you know, a, a legend in our field, uh, you know, he told us, look, you know, you're, you're taking a different approach, but then, then you have to take it to the end, right? The, the, the platform has to adapt to me. I'm not adapting to the platform. And, you know, we've kind of taken this to the extreme. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, we hear that uh, a lot from surgeons and uh, and uh, physicians, and it's it's not always easy to to do so. Uh, congrats. No, no, no. Okay, so you you've talking about the uh, gallbladder procedure, gallbladder removal procedures. Um, what what's the typical procedures the maestro can uh, can help with, and what are the indications that uh, you will target first? This is a question from uh, David, a VC from Paris. Maybe you know him. Yeah, so, you know, there is, there's virtually no limit, right, in terms of which laparoscopy procedures we can address. And, and we've built a system for that. And we have, you know, an FDA clearance also that pretty much allows any laparoscopy procedure, whether it's even, you know, abdominal, thoracic, gynecologic, urologic, um, you name it. But uh, to date, uh, we have experience only in abdominal surgery clinically. And we've used um, our platform in seven different clinical indications. 
we have removed a number of gallbladders, um, we have repaired hernias, we've done um, Nissen fund applications, uh, we've done bariatric surgery, gastric sleeve, gastric bypass. Um, we recently did an anastomosis redo, which was kind of a random indication, but you know why not? So you know the the system is very versatile and uh, and really allows for um, for all these procedures and can be configured um, for for the requirements um, of you know each one of these slightly differently. Our initial target is going to be these high volume you know, abdominal procedures. So, um, you know, gallbladder, hernia, appendectomy, which is, you know, a market in the US, not not in, in Europe or not in France, because, you know, people don't do appendectomies in France for other different reasons, I'd say. And bariatric surgery, obviously. Okay. Uh, in in uh, surgical robotics, uh, the, there are some uh, pushback from hospitals and surgeons about the cost per procedure uh, due to the, the history of, uh, of um, the, the main uh, platform existing on the, on, on the market. Uh, so they are quite sensitive to that. What are, What's the disposable for the maestro and, and um, how does it work? How do you reprocess the equipment? So that's a great question. So we don't provide any instrumentation, right? That's really important to understand. We use off-the-shelf laparoscopy instruments. You know, the, basically the, the instruments they would be using for that procedure if Maestro was not used. Um, so, so we don't change anything there. But there are some disposables uh, with our system, which are um, the drapes. Uh, we have a custom drape, of course, going um, you know, on top of the system. And, and what we call the instrument couplers, which are used um, to, I have some here actually, just give me a second, uh, which are used to um, attach the instruments um, to the tip to the tip of our arms. You know, I mean, this is like a 3D printed model, but you know, okay. this, is, this is an instrument coupler. And so you would typically have two, right? One at each, um, one on each arm, and, and these are disposables. So you know the disposable component is is pretty minimal, and uh, and will be priced, um, you know, in a, in a very accessible way. I think you know you mentioned adaptability, which is clearly one of our keywords and one of our obsessions. The other one is accessibility, and accessibility really comes with you know the design of your product, of course, making sure it's um, super easy to use, it doesn't require extra training, but also making sure you know people can use it broadly, right? And and making sure that um, from a from a business standpoint, it's a technology that you know can be acquired uh, and and utilized by you know settings which typically would not be able to afford a robot and and so we we believe that a big piece of the innovation resides um, in the business model um, okay. as well and and we believe that evolving the business model is um, you know is actually a pretty central part of our approach so we we have a business model that is a uh, basically an, an all-inclusive uh, monthly subscription based on volume um, and so the disposables would be folded uh, okay. basically in, in that monthly subscription so that people don't have to worry about it. You know, simplicity is not only intra-procedural, it's also procurement, uh, it's also training. I mean, there's a lot of areas where you can improve things from a simplicity standpoint. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, we 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 are seeing uh, more and more of these uh, subscription subscription uh, models in the in, in the robotic space and and other assistive technologies such as uh, mm -hmm. augmented reality to help uh, with the, with, yeah. with the, the procedure. So, I got a question from a, a U.S. surgeon, Dr. Mike Mahon. What have been the the surgeons' feedbacks on the the integration into the existing workflow? Very good question. Um, Feedback has been pretty overwhelmingly positive. Um, so, you know, to, to, you know, to be perfectly transparent, we have not done a clinical case in the US yet, right? Our, our clinical experience has only been in Europe to date, but we've done an, a lot of cadaver labs and we brought a lot of US surgeons and nurses um, into these, um, these cadaver labs. And the feedback is, well, they, they first, um, they, they think that our system is very easy to use, right? Learning curve of one case. Um, basically, you, you get them in, you train them uh, during 10, 15 minutes, and, and they're ready to go, which makes sense, right? We're not really changing anything. The, the additional thing they have to manage is the scope and the retractor. But um, the interaction with our system is very simple, right? There's no button, there's no clutch, there's no pedal. You just grab the scope, you move it, you let it go. So there's nothing really to learn except, you know, the understanding how we communicate the status of the system um, to the surgeon, right? To make sure yeah. it's locked or unlocked, etc. So, yeah, so they, they think it's very easy to use. Um, they tell us that it's, um, you know, according to them, very appropriate for these bread and butter procedures. Um, but I think the most powerful is, you know, we've had feedbacks like, you know, you, you've turned, you know, um, laparoscopy to an absolute joy. Uh, they, they think it's fun actually using our system. Um, they think it's, um, they, they like the confidence it gives them. And, and they tell us, hey, you know, if, if I'm in charge of, all that, you know, the scope and the retractor, I'm going to be, you know, shaving off a few minutes from every cholecystectomy or every um, hernia repair, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm, I know what my needs are. I can really only move the scope and the retractor when I need them to be moved, which means far less than, assist, than, than they would require an assistant to move it. You know, when an assistant is holding their vision, the surgeons are, you know, anxious or they're they're concerned when when the instruments get to the tip of, of the screen right um and so they don't have a very good tolerance uh for that so they'll constantly ask the assistant to reposition right and the yeah. assistant is constantly repositioning during the procedure but when they work on their own and they know the system is perfectly stable and solid and holds the scope in position they can tolerate working on the edges mm -hmm. uh, of their laparoscopy screen a lot more. So, so they don't have to move it that much. And, and that's pretty easy to measure. So, you know, it's one of the beauties. And that's why they'll tell us, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I feel so powerful. You know, I feel so efficient, you know. <laughs> and um, and the, the last piece, and that's really from our clinical investigator who's used the system for, you know, whole procedure days where he did five cases in a row using our system is that he feels a lot less fatigued at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, he's had his family tell this to him when he goes home. Um, and I think it relates again to, you know, just the simplicity and, and having to manage um, fewer things mm -hmm. um, in the OR and have it a little more um, streamlined workflow basically than um, the traditional workflow. So is, uh, from what I understand, part of the value proposition is also to uh, uh, do not need one uh, surgical assistant during the procedure, or correct? 
That's correct. Um, you know, we, we think, I think the way we, we put it is we are enabling alternative labor models. I think what we want to say by that is, and of course, you can have, you know, um, one, you know, fewer headcount, um, you know, someone, someone doesn't need to be in the room. I don't know how, you know, hospitals and ASCs will implement this uh, exactly. I think that's, you know, it's yet to be, to be seen. Uh, I don't think the, the surgical assistants will entirely disappear uh, with our system. You know, there are still, you know, some procedures, there are five trocar procedures, right, where you still need an assistant. There are some emergent procedures where you might not feel comfortable not having an assistant. But I think the reality today is that a lot of operating rooms are not properly staffed. And so for a number of these, um, you know, straightforward cases, you can imagine performing them without the surgical assistant in the room. And you can basically unable that operating room to be, you know, delivering throughputs with, with um, you know, limited staff requirements. Um, so I think it's, it's a way for um, hospitals and ASCs to have more agility in the way they deploy the, their existing staff, mm. for sure. Okay, understood. So I, I will come back to a more technical question. I think uh, this, is a, this is coming from a Robin from uh, North Carolina. Uh, so you, you, you explained that basically you, are, you snap the robotic arm to the instrument and then uh, you move it. And then when you remove, the device knows that uh, you, you don't want it to move anymore and it just stabilizes yep. the position. So how does this uh, gravity composition works? Uh, not not confidential information, mm -hmm. and uh, and do you have any kind of a calibration phase because you could be uh, handling different kind of instruments, all, all all sorts of laparoscopic instruments. So maybe they are not they do not have the same weight. Is there any kind of calibration, or is it just uh, ready to 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 go? So I'll start with the first question, right? The gravity compensation. So. So our arms um, themselves are, um, you know, initially or originally um, haptics input devices, right? That's what they're used for. They're used um, as a joystick, basically, typically to control another robotic arm, right? Okay. The initial use case is maintenance of nuclear plants, right? That's what they were developed for. So to replicate very fine movements from the operator, you know, in a tel telemanipulation uh, scheme. Um, so we've kind of turned that around. Uh, and so we're using them as the effector. But it means that we're constantly measuring, you know, the forces, the positions, the movements, uh, anything that is applied uh, on the instruments held by the arm, right? So, um, so we're measuring all these efforts, and of course, um, we're able to compensate for them, you know, using software basically. Okay. Uh, and so that's how the gravity compensation works. It's completely, you know, dynamic, to the point that you know we really, um, you know, it's not only that we replicate the laparoscopy experience; we can replicate the laparoscopy experience without the gravity, right? So, making mm -hmm. it even lighter for surgeons okay. to maneuver their instruments. And then your second question was on calibration. So when you attach the instrument, um, we need like a very short sampling, uh, basically, you know, a few thousands of data points, um, you know, moving okay. the instrument uh, to understand what instrument it is and, and calibrate the system. Okay. So that's a, so a I think it's, it's completely transparent for the user, you know, that basically by the time they, you know, move their instrument in the trocar, uh, we, we, we have everything we need. 
Okay, so I had uh, other questions, but uh, I think you already answered them uh, about the training. So the training seems to be very short, like a, a couple of cases, because just uh, you operate the same way you, you did before. And the learning curve, exactly. learning, how, how long is the learning curve? So, you know, we, we have, um, you know, some clinical experience, but, you know, limited in, in terms of number of surgeons. But uh, from what we've seen in the clinic and on cadavers, there is a learning curve. I mean, of course, you know, people get just more and more comfortable using the system but it's extremely short right it's it's you know less than 10 patients uh, we 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 saw what was interesting to us when we started our clinical um you know study was we we started by doing only cholecystectomies we then broadened it to additional clinical indications and over the first 10 cholecystectomies we we saw a pretty dramatic reduction in the procedure duration uh, you know, I'm not saying the first procedures were long. I mean, the first procedures were, you know, no an more. hour. I mean, you know, not nothing compared to the eight hours that the first um, cholecystectomy with Da Vinci took, right? It was very, very manageable. Um, but at the end, we were doing cholecystectomies in 17 minutes, you know, which is probably even faster than they would do without the the, the use of our system. So yeah, for sure. You know, people I think as they understand the, the the value and the way to use our system, will will leverage it and optimize the, the the duration of the procedure. I think that's where we're going to see, you know, most of the learning curve kicking in. Okay, cool. So I got a I had a, a question from uh, someone who actually went to the show, Dr. Jawad Ali, who is a, a general surgeon in, in Texas, and he he was asking how the maestro is set up to penetrate the AS, ASC market since uh, in, Intuitive seems to be uh, struggling. I think you answered pretty much this one with the subscription model, but uh, do you have anything to add on uh, on this? Yeah, I I, I do because I think you know a lot of, I, as I was mentioning before, it, there it's really twofold, right? There's the there's the product design um, and you know, the obsession of doing something simple is, as you know, um, not simple, right? You know, it's probably the most difficult thing to do yeah. in R&D is to do something simple and completely seamless and to make sure you don't, you know, satisfy yourself by putting too sophisticated things into your system. I mean, it's mm -hmm. great, right, for your R&D team to think about uh, all the, you know, very elaborate things that could go in but that's really not the point the point is is to it's, it has to be super elaborate inside but super easy from the outside and you know that that is really one of our obsessions you know how can we remove this button but keep the functionality and so we you know we, we've been through that a lot and and so when it comes to product design I think we have a special attention to what happens in the procedure, of course, but we have uh, also a very strong focus on what happens outside of the procedure. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, our commercial product has a feature which um, automates the setup of the system. So, you know, you, you basically bring the system close to the bed. There's something that tells you, hey, stop here. You're close enough. And then you hit a cholecystectomy. And then based on the room setup, the bed, um, the bed angle, the surgeon height, the way the surgeon has done his previous cases, the system by itself does that and puts the arms, you know, in the optimal position for that surgeon, for that indication, for that room and for that patient, of course. 
And so, you know, that's all part of, you know, creating a system that can be used in an ASC, right? Because you don't want to overburden your staff with the setup and the docking of the system, which, you know, we, we all know is, is one of the major pain points uh, with some of the other platforms. So product design is definitely, you know, a central piece of, um, you know, integrating ourselves into the ASCs. And then the other piece is, is the business model, as we, as we discussed. Okay, I'm very excited about this uh, automation question. But uh, first, uh, just before, I will uh, try to um, ask a couple of questions about uh, the differentiator. With uh, you know, today there are more than 150, maybe 200 surgical robotics companies out there, and mm -hmm. probably 40 to 50 who are, are only targeting soft tissue uh, surgeries yeah. with a single port, multi port, or a natural orifice. Um, approach so when when it comes to uh, mechanical capabilities because i understand uh, your device is uh, is very simple to use and uh, very quick to learn and and to uh, to bring to uh, an existing workflow the davinci on the other side they they brought uh, advanced technology like the wristed instrument uh, the 3d vision yeah. uh, i think uh, your your device uh, still provides kind of some kind of a tremor filtering control of the camera stability of the instrument how do you do you think your uh, surgeons will react to not having this um, advanced uh, wristed instrument, uh, for instance, or the three division? Yeah, the wrist. Well, the three division. I mean, you can get right. You just yeah. use a three D okay. camera, and mm -hmm. you know, so that's that's not an issue. The wristed instrument is is a really really good question, you know, and so. Our initial answer was, hey, you know, there are wristed laparoscopy instruments. You know, we just have to be compatible with them. They're they're not. You know they're not used a lot, but some of them, um, you know, have probably the right capabilities. And if we can integrate them or or make sure they're compatible with with our platform, then then we can really deliver the best of both worlds, right? Um, to to surgeons, and you know that's clearly one of the you know directions uh, we we want to go um, with. But but when we um, were doing clinical cases a few months ago. We had a case where you know it was a it was a gallbladder removal and the surgeon went in and there were um, you know basically adhesions everywhere in the abdomen because the patient had you know had multiple surgeries before and so you know we were going in for a fifteen minute case and he said oh no this is going to be like a two hour two or three hour procedure just to get to the gallbladder and uh and you know he he actually used our system for this whole time um and 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 told us you know with basically he, the the stability of the system and the the ability to control it and to approach um the camera really from you know uh the the location he was dissecting um with a lot of um um ease of you know navigation yeah at the end of the procedure, he told us, you know, I, I was really doing microsurgery here, you know, and, you know, the, the stability and the confidence you're providing me basically um, compensate okay. for the, the absence of a wristed instrument. And we've had that in another um, cholecystectomy case where um, we had to, you know, ligate things because it was like not the typical anatomy. And so they, they had to do a lot of suturing uh, before they could, um, you know, take the gallbladder out. We, we got the same comments. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's equivalent to a wristed instrument. I'm saying there are other ways basically to, to provide the comfort um, that a surgeon needs to do a proper suture mm -hmm. in a laparoscopy procedure. Uh, and, and I think we can deliver that to some extent. So, you know, it makes of both you know probably compatibility with wristed instruments and then 
facilitating the life of the surgeon with everything else uh, so that they can do you know a better job at suturing with their mm -hmm. regular instruments okay yeah plus plus they they keep the the haptic feedback since they are manipulating instruments absolutely themselves. so that's yeah, a, that's a, a big difference and uh, yeah that resonates with another episode i've done with the pelvic reconstructive surgeon uh, dr paula Dodge, she was mentioning that uh, she was using fluorescence imaging as a, a compensation for not having the haptic feedbacks in the in the davici system yeah. so i understand there are ways to do differently but still be confident in performing the same surgical task uh, mm -hmm. in a different way great so now i'm moving on to uh, the ai and the data thanks for listening to the first part of the discussion with Anne osdua ceo of moon surgical in the next episode, Anne will share how the Maestro robot is recording three streams of data and how the team intends to leverage this data into actionable features in the commercial product. She will also talk about the company's story, how it started, the challenges she had to solve as a CEO of an early stage company, how to run a startup with French and American teams, the partnership with NVIDIA and more. Thank you all for listening to the Less Invasive Podcast, your source for minimally invasive surgery and assistive technologies for the operating room and radiology environment. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. Music